0: Thank you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. Reformed churches are sometimes accused of being rather stoic in their worship. Some might accuse a Reformed church as being one that quenches the Holy Spirit. Is this claim really fair? Do Reformed people really desire to quench the Holy Spirit? Why do Reformed people have such a high view of the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments? Does the Lord really work through such means? Please join us and be edified as we consider the Lord building His church through the means of grace in our series titled, Why Such Means? Well, when we talk about the means of grace as we're going through this uh, series about the means of grace, it simply means the means that God uses to cultivate eternal life. He's uh, using these means for the Spirit to conform us, strengthen us, and call us uh, into the kingdom. Uh, and to empower us as we sojourn under the sun. So we've seen that the preaching of the gospel is a word of life, as we've seen the Valley of Dry Bones. We're reminded that the canon of Scripture is self-attesting. As we read the Word of God, we see that the Word of God comes with fulfillment. Also, the Spirit testifies to its truthfulness. We also know that as we uh, follow Christ, Christ doesn't tell us just to improve self, Uh, This isn't a message just of self-help, but it's a message with a reminder that we're dying to self, uh, we're counting the cost, and we understand that we're called to live for our Redeemer. Uh, So it's not just self-improvement, it's not just getting better, and obviously, as we're sanctified, we will be improved and we will get better, uh, but ultimately, it's that consciousness of living for Christ, Now when we consider the nature of the word in the sacrament as we're starting to to go into this topic, as Reformed people, we believe that the word of God is a word that can stand on its own, but the sacrament cannot stand on its own. Now this is a, a pretty strong statement. Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Anglicans, Episcopalians would disagree with us on this point. However, as Reformed, we see this as an important point. The sacraments are basically communicating visibly what the Word of God is stating. And so we need the Word of God to understand what the sacrament is communicating. So we can have the Word without the sacrament, but we can't have the sacrament without the Word. And so when we hear that, we might say, well, how can we really say that? How do we know that the sacraments need the Word of God for us to really understand what they mean. And so as we look at this, I'd like to look at Romans 4 as our launching point where we consider what the Belgic Confession is teaching us. We say, well then, how do we come to faith? Uh, How does that priority as Paul lays it out? What is the seal of righteousness? And what is this teaching us today? And so let's begin with Um, How do we come to faith or how do we have have faith in Christ? Well, as we mentioned, we would say that the word stands on its own. uh, The sacraments are not superior. So when we say this, you know, we speak about the sacraments being the visible, tangible word. Now, this is credited to St. Augustine as we uh, look at Uh, church history we can see that saint augustine's probably the first one who said this uh, where he says uh, along the lines that it's a visible presentation of the preached word now eastern orthodox and well mostly eastern orthodox would look at us and say see here's the rationalization where the reformed church departs uh, from the history of the church the problem with that claim is is that when we look in church history, and it's also in our form that we use this morning on the Lord's Supper, if you go back and and read it, that there's a statement that the church fathers use, and I believe we can trace all the way back to the 2nd century, or maybe the 1st century even. And it's the language of the thing and the thing signified that our form used this morning, that the thing is not abstracted from the thing that's signified. Um, So the, the point of that is a thing would be Christ, The thing signified is what's going on in the Lord's Supper. It's signifying his sacrifice. So we can't look at the sacraments as a point of it and see them as communicating a different word, a different grace, a different gospel, a different Christ. It's communicating the same reality. So what St. Augustine doing, or or Augustine, or you want to say it, is doing is basically taking what the church fathers have said. And just rewording it in a different way but it's the same intention that even the reformed use in our sacramental forms so somebody comes in and says well the reformed church its a maverick tradition doesn't care about church history or the church fathers that's just not true uh, the the reformed wanted to be discerning as to what's appropriate in the tradition and what's not appropriate in the tradition uh, so we do use that language from the church fathers, that the thing that signified is not abstracted from the thing or from Christ. And so that's generally in terms of, of when we talk about the sacraments, what, what are they symbolizing? What's going on? That's all that's going on. Well, the Belgic Confession notes something about our God, uh, which is true, and I affirm this, and I think when you look at Romans 4, we certainly see this. Well, the Belgian Confession uses this language uh, regarding the sacraments that, that it's not so optimistic in terms of the human condition. A lot of other traditions that say that the sacraments stand on their own believe they're so self-attesting. Uh, we, we need them. They're higher than the word. But notice what the Belgic says. It says, we believe our gracious God mindful. So certainly the, the Lord's giving this to us because we don't fully believe the word of God, right? We, we don't always fully believe the gospel or always fully understand what, what the gospel is communicating. I mean, sure, it, it comes to us. We, we hear the words, but we don't always believe it. And so the Lord then gives us the visible sign or the visible seal of the gospel. And notice what the Belgic continues to say. Mindful of our insens- insensitivity and weakness has ordained the sacraments to seal his promises to us and to be pledges of his goodwill and grace toward us. Now, what that simply means is about a confession is saying, God understands who we are. I mean, honestly, if God only gave us Genesis 1 through 3, that would be enough to be saved. God doesn't have to give us any more than the first three chapters of Scripture. The fact that God gives us more testifies how gracious he really is. He's long-suffering. He wants us to understand his word. And the Belgic is saying that that we are so fragile. We're we're so doubtful uh, of God and his promises that that we needed more. And and we needed a, a clearer presentation that what God says in his word is really true. And that's why he's given us the sacraments. So it's not testifying to our faith. It's not testifying to our superior nature as human beings. It's testifying to the reality we are weak creatures who doubt the promises of God, and God is long-suffering, God is gracious, and God goes up and beyond what we deserve. Uh, Communicating his gospel even clearer to us is why he gives us the sacraments Is a point of the Belgic. Now, when we go on and we think about this problem of us lacking faith, we might say, well, this seems a little harsh. I mean, this, this seems a, a little uh, something where, where we're just really being hard on humanity. But this is where I think Romans 4, and I've used this passage before, but I think it's so important that we look at Romans 4, verse 11, and hear what the po- Apostle Paul is saying to the church. Because the Apostle Paul raises this important issue. And the important issue he's raising, where where it seems, at least when you look at some of the the newer writings coming out, studying church history and reading the history of the synagogue worship, one of the challenges, it seemed, the early, very early church, uh, basically dealing with the apostolic church, meaning the apostles actually visited these congregations, when I say that, we're apostolic in the sense that we're built in their tradition, but apostolic in the sense that the apostles actually came to these churches and preached. One of the challenges they had would be the Jewish converts who believed Christ was the Messiah and the Gentile converts, right? The Jews would say, this is our Christ, this is our tradition. And the Gentiles would say, we believe this Christ, we embrace him, and we embrace him by faith. or The Jews were saying, great, be circumcised, be part of us. And the Gentiles were saying, well, we don't know if we need to be circumcised. Is that really the intention of what's going on? We certainly see that as a debate with the Jerusalem Council. Now, in terms of what Paul's addressing in Romans 4, it seems that's the very issue that's going on here. Because as you have Gentiles coming into the church, Paul's asking this important question When was Abram, or Abraham, going on Genesis 17? But when was Abraham really righteous? Was it when he bore the sign? Or was it when he embraced the gospel or the word by faith? And this is an important issue because ironically, what what are they teaching? The Jewish people are believing that, that the sacrament automatically works, aren't they? That in order for you to really have Christ, you have to have the sacrament. And if you don't have the sacrament of circumcision, you don't really have Christ. And so what are they teaching? Well, the sacrament stands on its own. Isn't this what John the Baptist and Christ are are rebuking? Don't say we have Abraham as our father. Don't say we bear the sign of circumcision. Don't say that we're part of this covenant community. You need to embrace the Messiah in faith. That's exactly what Paul is addressing here in the church. You need to embrace Christ. And so when he asks this question, he goes to a series of quotes. Genesis uh, 15, verse 6, and 4, verse 3 is the first quote. Abraham believed God and counted it to him as righteousness. So this is where the Lord makes a promise, uh, calls Abraham away from a land of idolatry, makes a promise. Abraham believes it's credited to him as righteousness. He says, Amen to the promises of God. As we go on in the development of this argument, basically verses 4 through 5, there's an echo back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 and 5. A reminder that Israel is not worthy of the Lord's affection, but it's the Lord who has shown his grace and mercy. Again, it's not circumcision that has made them right before God. It's the grace of God, the, the gift that has been given to him, the graciousness of the Lord. We have also... Habakkuk 2, verse 4, where we have this assurance of God justifying the ungodly, right? And so Habakkuk the prophet testifies to this reality. Then he cites David. And as he cites David, it's Psalm 32. Again, a great Reformation psalm that the reformers cherished. that the lawless deeds are forgiven, not because one is circumcised, but because one takes hold of Christ by faith. And so the Apostle Paul is is formulating a very brilliant argument here. Because the Jews could say, oh, well, we're members of the Old Testament. We just want to submit to the canonical words of Moses and David and the others who have gone before them in the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. And Paul's saying, great. What is that tradition? Here it is. The very tradition I'm laying out that those who take hold of Christ by faith are those who have life. Those who believe the word of promise are those who have life. And so Abraham is chosen by grace. And so the Apostle Paul right here as we set the context is laying the basis of his argument. When we ask this question in terms of this, how have faith? Well, the Apostle Paul says it's not by the sacrament, it's not by circumcision, it's by the preached word, it's by the promise, it's by taking hold of the messianic savior who has promised to arrive in history. And so that's the argument. He's saying this is the Old Testament canon, this is what we've seen. Now going on we say, but but what about this language of a seal? Uh, when we think about a seal, we, we think about seals fresh in, right, guarantees uh, that somebody has... Uh, fresh leftovers, you know, you can think of this in terms of Tupperware container in our minds as contemporaries, you know, you, you seal out the air and it guarantees something. So, so we read seal, that's where our minds go. But somebody who would receive this text and hear this text would think in another way. Because in terms of, of this language that the Belgian Confession is giving us, it's not talking about a guaranteed entrance in terms of the sacraments, is it? Remember, it's mindful of our weakness that God gives us the sacraments because we're prone to doubt the Word of God. And we say, well, well, how do we know that? How do we know that that's the case? Well, as the Apostle Paul has already recounted, it is faith that is counted to him as righteousness. So it's important in terms of the sacrament of circumcision, Genesis 15 is first. Genesis 12 is prior to Genesis 15. These are both based on the word of God calling Abram out of his house based upon the promise of the Messiah. As Paul goes on, Abram realizes he's dead. Genesis 12, he's called out, leaves with his nephew. Implication, his brother can have children. Abraham and Sarah are barren. Paul goes on, Romans 4 Abram understands the point of the gospel, is life comes through death. So his body is good as dead. So again, it's the word, the word, the word that's coming through here. And so what is this seal that, that the Apostle Paul's laying out here? Because it's not just a Belgian confession. It's not just Reformed theology that speaks of the seal. Paul uses this language. And so in Romans 4, verse 11... He says he receives a sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. So this means he already possesses righteousness, but he receives this seal as a sign picturing the reality of this promise. And so we, we might say, well, then then what's the point of this? What's going on? Well, the seal, when we look at it in Scripture, is simply testifying to an authoritative statement. In fact, if we look it up in, in the Greek word, literally means a mark denoting or claiming ownership. Uh, the seal, we can find examples in Revelation, say 7 verse 2, where you have the, the seal of the scroll is uh, basically cut, it's opened, and so what this is speaking of is it's, it's that wax Um, seal that goes over a rolled-up scroll, or what we would say an envelope that's sealed up. Uh, There would be a unique signet ring that a king or an official would have. Each official would have their own ring, and when that wax is hot, they would press that ring into the hot wax, testifying the, the authenticity or the truthfulness of that message. And so in order for someone to change that message, they would have to break the seal, uh, change the message, and try and reseal it, and it would be impossible to once again melt that wax and, and get that imprint exactly right. So it testifies to the reality that a king has sent it. So we see this in Revelation 7, Revelation 6 verse 2, Exodus 28 verse 11. There's a the language of the signet ring or the engraving of, Of the signet ring so that the the authority uh, of something could be a testified to so again this is what we find in scripture the language of scripture and it's not just something we're, we're digging up from history even though we also see it in history so when we look at this we say okay so Abram believes he receives a seal it's testifying to something authoritative And we say, so then, what is this sign? What is this seal? What is it testifying to? Well, it's testifying by the promise of the Holy Spirit. In fact, one of the criticisms that uh, the Eastern Orthodox bring against the Reformed, as I've mentioned, is we're just too rationalistic. Uh, We're too given in to the Enlightenment-type thought process. We're not those who really value spiritual things. And so here's a quote from Calvin on this text. Calvin says, and though by themselves they are profit nothing, referring to the sacraments, yet God has designed them to be as instruments of his grace, and he affects by the secret grace of his spirit that they should not be without benefit in the elect. So, right there, if somebody says, well, the Reformed, they're just rationalistic and they're not really understanding the Spirit's work, John Calvin speaks of the secret work of the Holy Spirit that's beyond our comprehension through the sacraments. That's what the Apostle Paul is speaking of in Romans 4, verse 11. And this is from his commentary on Romans 4, verse 11. That when we have the seal, it's not just something rational testifying to the authenticity or truthfulness of God's promise that there is something in the power of the Spirit that's working in us that we don't fully comprehend and we can't fully put our finger on. But it's the reality of this is testifying to the Lord's working. And so the Apostle Paul wants us to understand, Romans 4.11, that this sign, this seal, is not something different than the preached gospel. It's testifying to the same gospel. And so we say, well then, what about this righteousness? What's going on? Why why would we say the sacrament cannot stand on its own? Well, when we think about the the sealing of this message, and as the immediate audience would understand the intention of this, that it's not guaranteeing fresh staying in and and stale staying out. the, The testimony of this would be, Somebody who's a messenger, and again, a messenger who would bring a message generally would almost be like an ultra marathon runner, right? You'd be running from kingdom to kingdom, crossing mountains, fording rivers, going over questionable roads, fighting off wild beasts, whatever. I mean, these are real things, avoiding robbers and those sorts of things. And you can imagine a messenger bringing this message from their king to another king. And the king looks at at the letter, you know, and they're admiring the signet ring. And you're there as a messenger saying, yes, I'm glad you admire metal workers and and you admire what the, the king's signet ring looks like. I'm glad you even admire the quality of the wax. And the man just stands there looking at the seal. And there's a messenger, you're trying to be polite. This is a king, he could cut off your head. And you're thinking, my goodness, I've run All these miles, traveled all this distance, got this letter from the king. I'm bringing it to this guy. He's not even opening the letter. He's just staring at the seal, right? So when people say, well, the sacraments stand on their own, that's what they're doing. They're taking the letter. They're not looking at the substance of the letter, and they're just staring at the seal. And you're saying, this is absurd. And you want to say, sir, uh, could you please open the letter? Uh, the, The king's waiting on your response. You know, you're trying to think of a tactful way to do it. And so the king would open it up and he'd read the actual message that the king brought to him. And so when when Paul brings this, he's saying this is what we understand of the seal. It's testifying to the authority of the contents behind the seal. This really comes from the king, really comes from God himself. And so what is Abraham doubting? Why, Why does he need this gospel message? Well, when we've already called attention to Genesis 15 and the promise that Abram, who is uh, barren, Abram and Sarah have no children. The Lord's going to build his kingdom, the seed of the woman through this barren couple. Right? Romans 4, Paul plays in this, calls us for attention. Abram knowing as good, or Abraham knowing that, that his body is good as dead, as good as dead, that the Lord can bring life. So as Abraham says amen to the promise of God, he's saying, yes, I I know the Lord can do this. The Lord is the one who then uh, tells him to cut up the animals and he officially enters into the covenant of grace. So right there, Abraham knows the substance of the message. The thing he doubts and struggles with is whether or not the Lord is the one who can really bring about the substance of the message. He does have a bit of a faith crisis in Genesis 16, Romans uh, 4 goes on to recount, basically, Genesis 17 on, you think of Abraham even offering Isaac as a sacrifice. He truly understands the Lord can bring about this redemptive promise even in the midst of its faith crisis. So now when we talk about this, this sacrament today, this is where I think it's important to understand what the Belgic is telling us today about the sacraments coming to us Uh, because we are weak. Uh, We we don't always embrace the substance of the gospel. We don't always understand and believe the the promises of God. So as we see this, uh, we understand that uh, when we look at the, the nature of circumcision as Paul's asking the question, 4 verse 9, he's saying, is this blessing for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now think about that statement, because this really gets at the heart of the matter, doesn't it? Because what's going on, again, we've mentioned this, but it's important to drive it home. There are people who believe that the sacrament has this authority in such a way that because they bear the mark of circumcision, they're in the kingdom. And Paul is saying, it's not because of circumcision. You have to embrace the substance of the covenantal promise. You have to embrace the substance of the word. This is why in verse 10, was it before or after? Well, uh, they'd say it's before. Before he received the sign of circumcision. And this is where it's important when you get to verse 11 about this sign and what's going on. Because it's this sign that he receives after the promise. Now again, Baptists will take this And they'll say, see, he makes a profession of faith, then he receives the sign. And and the simple answer to that is saying, okay, is the Apostle Paul talking about when we apply the sign, first of all? And secondly, what's the precedent in Genesis 17? Uh, Abraham is to apply the sign to his whole household, which is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. And so just keep that in mind. If if somebody of a baptistic persuasion takes you to this text and says, see, here's a proof that you profess," Then you receive the sign, you say yes, and that's not the point of what Paul's making. He's dealing with the issue, is does the sacrament save, or is it the Word of God that saves? You know, where, where is the priority of the sacrament versus the Word of God? Genesis 17, household, uh, is, is, uh, the household is circumcised, acts you find that the household is baptized based upon the profession of one. So in, in terms of what's going on here, why does he have this sign? And this is what the Belgian Confession is picking up on. Well, we think of Genesis 12. The Lord calls him out of the land of idolatry, right? So he's leaving his father's house. He responds to the call, leaves with his wife, leaves with his brother's son, which again, that's an important point. It implies Abraham's brother is able to have children. Abraham and Sarah are not. We go then, as the Lord gives him the promise, Genesis 15, we've we've encountered this. The Lord comes to him as a shield and defender. He's going to make him a great nation. He's going to bless him. That's the reality of Genesis 15. The Lord enters into that official covenant. Well, in Genesis 15, we we find that as the Lord makes his promise, confirming Genesis 12, and again, the Lord has led him through Egypt. The Lord has protected him. Abraham has lied about his wife. Uh, trying to protect himself, and has seen that God can certainly intervene. Well, we have Abraham having a faith crisis in Genesis 16. This is an important point in the progression of this text, because this is a priority that Paul is calling to our attention, that he received the sign of circumcision before or after he believed. Well, we know he believed first, and he received the sign. So Paul's saying, well, what's the history of the sign? And that's an important question isn't it because genesis 16 is right before right between 15 and 17 and when you think about this text what's going on well abraham and sarah they say well god's having a difficult time bringing about this redemptive promise i mean what are they really saying they're saying he's not doing it in our timetable therefore god has failed i mean isn't this what we do Uh, We have this timetable. God's supposed to do something in a timetable. He doesn't do it, therefore God's failing, and and he needs us to push things along. So they conspire together that Hagar will be the surrogate mother, and they're going to produce an heir to help God's promise along. And so again, notice how they're they're selling this. It's it's a problem with God. God's failing. We we need to help God along. We, We want this child to be in the kingdom and and we want to continue the seed of the woman and we believe that God can work through the seed of the woman and so we have to conspire through a surrogate mother and that's what they're conspiring to do well Genesis 17 we find that Ishmael here is what 12 years old when he's circumcised so this means that they've gone over a decade after committing uh, this sin And now we have Genesis 17 where Abram tries to bargain with God. And he says to God, well, can't Ishmael be be the child? I mean, it's a lot easier. I mean, it is a lot easier, isn't it? You have something tangible there. You see the promise of God. You don't have to wait on, on the promise of God any longer. The Lord says, no, I'm going to raise up an heir. I'm going to do this in my timing. I will bring life from death. The Lord then not only gives Abram the sign of circumcision, but changes his name. And this is an important change because he goes from a father is exalted, where he's identified with his dad, to all of a sudden now it's changed to a father of a multitude. This name change is identifying this barren couple in the most ironic, strange, absurd statement. A barren couple is now going to have a multitude of children, meaning nations, coming from them. I mean, it's it's mind-blowing to think about how God's promise goes beyond them, selling him so short. We'll just produce one heir, right? And the Lord's saying, you're not seeing this. It's not one heir that I'm talking about. I'm talking about a multitude of nations, a multitude of people. And that's an important point because this brings us into the kingdom as Paul saying this in Romans 4. Abraham becomes our father as we take hold of Christ by faith, embracing the substance of the same promise. So Abraham then receives a sign on the organ of generation communicating that the Lord is going to bring about the genealogy of the seed of the woman. And it's that sign that's given to Abraham. It is through your line, through your genealogy, that the seed of the woman is coming to pass. Abraham is then to go and to circumcise all the males of his household. As we find, there's basically the option. It's a sign of a covenant between me and you. Uh, we have in Genesis uh, 15, where Abraham 17:15, where Abraham wonders how a man so old will have children, but the Lord makes it explicit that he will have children. And then we have also that warning that the one who is not circumcised will be cut off. Abraham then goes and he circumcises all the males of his household. One does wonder how that conversation went uh, when Abraham explains the name change and now the new sign that will be administered. Uh, And that's one of the questions I'd like to ask Eliezer of Damascus when I get to heaven. Hopefully I can remember it, but the Lord's glory will probably overshadow it. But nevertheless, getting back to Romans 4 verse 11 and Paul's point, Paul's point is that the sign of circumcision was a sign that was given to Abraham because he was weak, right? He doubted the promise of God. Now, it's not to deprecate the sacraments, and that's what the Belgic Confession is going on to communicate. It's not that the sacraments are bad, but it's a reminder of who we are. They're given to us because we doubt the promise in the word. And so there's something tangible given to Abram. I'm going to change your name, and you're going to be reminded. It's through the organ of generation, through your genealogy, that the seed of the woman will arrive in history, and that you will have a multitude of children through your genealogy. And so it's that visible presentation of the same word, not a different gospel, not a different word, not a different promise, not a different christ all pointing to the same christ the same one that the word holds out and so the lord is the one who gives us a sign assuring our faith testifying to the validity of the word that he has given and so then we ask that question of why is it that there are traditions that stand against us in terms of this. And the reality is, I I don't know all the ins and outs, and I don't think, well, I know some of them, but I don't think we have the time to go into all the ins and outs. But the thing we take from this and want to learn is that it's not so much there's traditions that disagree with us. There there certainly are. I'm not going to lie about it. But just because they disagree with us doesn't mean they're right. What we find in the gospel. What we find in Paul's writings, what we find in relation of the word and the sacrament, is we want to understand who we are. We like the tangible. We like things that we can touch and taste and see, right? That's why Hebrews have a tough time letting go of the sacrifices. But yet the Lord gives them to his people to remind them of the one sacrifice of Christ. And so it is with the sacraments. The Lord's aware of who we are. We are a sensory people. He, he's created us with, with senses. And so the Lord doesn't want to give us a weak faith or, or to interrupt our faith or to harm our faith, right? The, the Lord is, is strengthening our faith. And so He's doing it through the Word as we continually hear the gospel, continually reminded that Christ's work is sufficient continually reminded that the Spirit is at work in us, and we really are a people who have moved from death to life, right? That's what Paul goes on. This, this is the other thing that's being communicated through Abraham and Sarah, what the Lord wants to communicate. Life doesn't come from life. That it's dead people who are brought to life in the power of God, valley of dry bones, these sorts of things. And it's the Lord who's doing this. The sacraments are merely presenting this same gospel, this same promise, where Abraham was weak, that the Lord is the one who is bringing out the reality, the tangible nature that is through your line, the seed of the woman will triumph. And so let us not see the sacraments as above the word in the sense that they're holding out a different grace or holding out a different gospel. Let us understand that, that the word is communicating to us the clear promises of God. Let us embrace him, But let us also understand that the sacraments are complementing that word. It's that visible word, that presentation of the same gospel. Let us then walk in the consciousness of realizing we are a redeemed people. We struggle. We are prone to doubt the promises of God. But it's not a problem with God. It's a problem within us. Let us continue then to look to him and to find her strength in Him and her power in Him and in Him alone. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. To find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive, most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshiping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.